0: morning. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Acts chapter 26. Acts 26. While you're turning there, let me fill you in on uh, one of the core values that we have here as a church um, here at New Hope. Uh, by core values, I mean these are things that are vitally important to us as a church that we hold on to that kind of help us make decisions about certain things. And one of the core values that we have is uh, what we call strategic partnership. Uh, but simply put, it's a dedication that we have to missions. Back in January of 1972, New Hope started. That was when the church first began, and it started in what's now known as the mountain house. It's the house over on our church property uh, that uh, is now a maternity home here at New Hope. Uh, But the church started there, January 1972, and on the very first Sunday that the church met there in that house, they took up an offering to be given to missions, and every Sunday since, we've done the same thing. So when you give your finances, you give your tithe, a portion, a significant portion of that money goes to missions. And we partner globally with missionaries all around the world, partnering with them where we can't physically reach so that they can advance God's, uh, the gospel and advance God's kingdom. And we highlight that all throughout the year. So if you've been a part of New Hope this year, you've noticed that pretty consistently we will highlight Uh, missionaries mission partners that we have we'll either do that through video well they'll send us a video testimony and you'll get to see some footage of where they're at and where they're serving and hear a little bit of their story or uh, when we really have a treat we have missionaries that are actually here in person you'll get to hear from some of them actually next week Uh, so it's pretty cool and we'll interview them and you'll get to hear a little bit and be able to pray for them And so we love doing that. A few other things about missions here at New Hope. We're part of a a movement of churches known as the Restoration Movement. Let me me just real simply put it this way. When you see a church name followed by Christian Church, a lot of the times that's going to be a sister church to New Hope, part of what's called the Restoration Movement. Well, all of those churches around the country partner together. Uh, They come together, and they have what's called a, a, a conference on missions. It's called the International Conference on Missions, or ICOM, You'll hear that around here and see it on signage, ICOM. And that's just a group of churches coming together. And in a different city each year, they rent out a convention center. And hundreds of missionaries from all over the world come in, along with thousands of people that attend churches come together. And we join together. There's worship. There's teaching. You get to hear from the missionaries. There's an exhibit hall you get to walk through and see set up and pictures and get material from different missions that you could even personally support independent of what you support as a church family as well it's really a neat thing and i love going to it well every few years it's hosted here in indianapolis downtown at the convention center and this year 2020 the best year to host a conference uh it happens to be our year here in indianapolis Um, but due to the pandemic they've had to switch to a hybrid model meaning there'll be a little bit taking place down at the convention center but very little limited the student conference along with the exhibit hall will be open but the, the main sessions of the conference are going to take place online. Here's why that's important to you, maybe. This is free for you, so perk up. <laughs> we purchased a church registration for ICOM this year. Uh, we do that every year. And so you can go to ICOM anytime for free. Every year we purchase the church registration. This year that means that you can go to our website and learn how you can sign on to watch the conference online. In addition to that, next Saturday, two Saturdays from now, two Saturdays from now, Two Saturdays from now, pretty sure. Yeah, just look on the website. It knows more than me. Uh, So two Saturdays from now, we're going to host one of the main sessions right here in the building. And so you can come to New Hope and watch one of the sessions. All the details are on the website for that as well. In addition to that, you can make your way downtown uh, that weekend of ICOM. And you can walk around the exhibit hall and uh, learn about missionaries that were able to travel in. Many were not, but you'll be able to learn from many that have been able to do that. So a couple things. Register for ICOM join us online. Join us. We have what's called Mission Sunday every year, and this year it's November the 15th. We set aside a weekend just to focus on missions. It's a standalone weekend, so we'll pause the book of Acts. We'll have missions weekend, and then we'll finish out the book of Acts afterwards, and so that weekend we're going to focus on our missions, and uh, we're really excited about it, and so we want to encourage you. You'll see things out in the lobby. There's going to, the sermon is going to be pointed that direction, and so really want you to join us on the 15th. I want you to register online for ICOM and make plans to continue praying for all of our missionaries, getting as much information as you can. So let's pray, and we'll jump into Acts 26 this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those that bring your word to difficult places who go to reach unreached people to advance your kingdom. They're heroes. They're real heroes, Father. We are grateful for them. Grateful that they would go, many of whom have given their lives because they believe the gospel message, and they want other people to believe it as well. And so, Father, we thank you for their work. We thank you for their lives. We thank you for their dedication. May we be inspired and learn uh, from them. God, we thank you for your word, and as we turn our attention to it, would you teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit? And we ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. The turning point in his life started like this. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. An all-night wrestling match. Stories found in the Old Testament book of Genesis tells the story of Jacob having a rough time and meeting with an angel and wrestling with him all night. This wrestling match becomes a turning point in his life. You've had turning points, I'm sure. If we were to have a cup of coffee, you would be able to tell me about moments in your life that changed everything. Maybe you don't have a lot of them, but most of us have at least one where you go into a situation or you face a circumstance And you're not going to get through that circumstance being the same person. When you come out on the other end of whatever it is you're walking through, this moment, this shifting moment, this turning point experience in your life, you're going to be different on the other end of it. Well, this is what happens in the life of Jacob. Jacob's life leading up to this wrestling match was one disappointment after another, many of which happened to him, but a lot of them were due to his poor decision making. When we meet him in Genesis chapter 25, we see him in the womb, being delivered from the womb, holding on to his twin brother's heel. But like, as if saying, you might be getting out first, but we're gonna stay connected. I'm gonna compete for the rest of my life. And that's exactly what he did. Story after story in his life, it's as if he never could let go of that heel as Esau, his brother, is favored by their father and given blessings and always seems to be chosen first. And Jacob eventually has enough of it. Like, enough, I can't take this anymore. And so he goes to his brother and he tricks his brother into selling him his birthright, which was a huge deal in that day. He tricks him into giving him his birthright. Then he goes to his father, who's uh, old, Isaac, who is old in age and can't see and hear really well, and through a series of lies, convinces his father to give him the birthright blessing uh, that belonged to Esau. Well, this doesn't sit well with Esau, if you've read the story in the book of Genesis, and he doesn't appreciate that, as most siblings probably wouldn't, and so he wants to go on a rampage, and Jacob takes off and runs away through a plot that he and his mother had planned. And he runs away, and he's scared, and he's hiding, and um, this is where we pick up this story. It's at this wandering Jacob, this this guy that has one bad moment after another. We find him, heel-grabbing Jacob, coming up against an angel of the Lord, and during this wrestling match, his hip gets dislocated. His hip is completely dislocated. He's brought low. He's crippled. And he hangs on for dear life. It's as if during the wrestling match, he's grabbing onto God's heel. And he says, I won't let go. I'm not going to stop until you give me your blessing. I won't stop until I get a blessing from you. And the mysterious man's reply adds insult to injury for Jacob, who's been wandering and searching for his real identity most of his entire life. And he says, what is your name? you're reading the text, it's as if he says, Jacob, he might as well have said, guilty as charged. Because the last time he was asked that question, what's your name, he was lying to his father Isaac, saying that his name was Esau. Quite honestly, he'd been doing it ever since, lying about who he was, searching for his real identity. And the ironic thing about the story is that he'd received God's blessing numerous times. He'd been blessed and re-blessed, divinely reassured, not once but twice, not to mention he saw God's favor over 20 years with both the children he had, the land he was given, and the herds that he developed. He escaped the plot of his uh, evil uncle Laban and eventually got to win the heart of the girl that he loved. He knew God, he'd seen God, he'd heard God's promises. He saw God's favor, he walked with God, and yet it's as if he believed that God's blessing was not available to him without a fight. Had to fight for it. And so God comes to him and says, okay, Jacob, you don't want to receive this gift that I want to freely give to you that you don't need to earn, this gift that I'm offering up to you that is free. You're not having to do anything to get this gift. This is my gift to you, and you don't want to accept the gift? I'll wrestle you for it. It seemed to be the only language that Jacob understood. I don't know much about wrestling technically. The only wrestling I knew was when I beat my brother up growing up. I don't know the technical stuff, but I do know there's a, a, a technical move that you do called a reversal. And when someone's wrestling and someone's being, uh, they're on, someone else is on top of them, there is technical maneuvering that you can do to flip the script and get on top. It changes things. And this is what happens in this wrestling match with Jacob. Hosea chapter 12 tells us that Jacob wrestled with this angel all night and then prevailed. And you're thinking, Jacob's on top. Jacob's winning. But the very next line says, and then he wept and he begged God. For his blessing, he wept and begged God for a blessing. You see, just when he thought he was going to win, God pulled a reversal on him. And then the man says to Jacob, "Your name—it's no longer Jacob. You get a new name." You get a new identity. In fact, his blessings were threefold. He got three different blessings from this wrestling match, this turning point. You see, as he entered into this wrestling match, he thought one thing, and when he came out, he was a whole different person. He'd been given a new name, Israel. He'd been given a limp. In fact, the text tells us coming out of it, because his hip was dislocated, he walked with a limp, and as far as we can tell, he walked with that limp for the rest of his life, a reminder, a reminder of his dependency upon God. And the text tells us that he also got to see a glimpse of the face of God. From that day forward Jacob walked closely with God. Three different blessings coming from this turning point, pivotal moment in his life. But here's my question, what about us today? How is it that we enter into these turning point moments with God? These moments where God wants to wrestle with us if you will. When something needs to change, whether you're not a Christian and you've never made a decision for Christ, you've never been baptized into Christ. And so he's going to be wrestling with all kinds of things around you. Or what happens when we've been walking with Christ for some time and some things need to change. Some things need to develop in our lives. We need to take steps. Things need to be poked and prodded out of us. How is it that we wrestle? Because odds are we're not walking out into the parking lot and seeing an angel (laughs) squaring up ready to go toe-to-toe with us, right? So how do we wrestle with God? Well, this is what the text in Acts chapter 26 is going to tell us today. It's going to give us a little bit of an example of what it looks like and the role that we play in having these pivotal turning point type moments in our lives. Acts chapter 26, we're going to start in verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, this is King Agrippa, Paul's being brought from prison in front of Agrippa like we talked about last week, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand. We talked about that a few weeks ago. This was an orator's gesture to let everybody know, not only am I going to talk, but I've been trained and I know how to present uh, to you. And he began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so, Agrippa, I'm especially excited this morning because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, Agrippa, I beg you, listen closely Listen closely to what I'm going to say. We discussed last week that the Apostle Paul had been accused falsely of many different things. He'd been dragged in front of uh, one leadership body after another one. He'd been accused of uh, causing a riot, disturbing the peace, blasphemy, heresy. He'd been accused of all of these different things and consistently had to answer for it over and over and over again. Well, this new governor gets put in place, his name is Festus, and Festus shows up on the scene, and he wants to make a good impression among the Jews, and so he needs to do something with the Apostle Paul, but the problem with this is, Festus is new to the area, he doesn't understand how the Jews operate, he doesn't understand their traditions, their theology, their politics, he doesn't understand how the Jewish people lead themselves. And so Paul brings this accusation or this accusation is brought against Paul and Paul goes before Festus and he defends himself like we discussed last week. Festus gets to the end of the defense and he says, I got nothing. But Paul appealed to Rome, which means Festus has to send him on to Rome to go before Caesar. Here's the problem for Festus. If you are to send a prisoner accused of such crimes as disturbing disturbing the peace among the Roman people and you're to send him to uh, Caesar, you better have a good reason because no one wants to waste Caesar's time. That's not a good thing for Festus. And so Festus comes to this understanding, I've got nothing. I need help. And I don't understand how to write a a report to send to Caesar that actually has accusations against Paul because none of these are holding up. And so he recruits King Agrippa. He goes to Agrippa, who understood Jewish customs because his family had ruled in the region of Judea for many, many years, and he understood all their traditions, how they operated, all these different things. So he says, hey, Agrippa, would you come, and would you help me work together to write this report so I can send it to Caesar? Because I got nothing, man. I am way out of my league, and I really need your help. And so King Agrippa and his entire entourage, they show up and they bring the Apostle Paul in. And they say, okay, I need to hear from Paul so that then I can go work with Festus to write up a report to send Paul on to Rome. Because no no one wants Caesar upset with this region. We're all in trouble if he's angry with us. And so let's make sure we get this right. They bring Paul in and he says, go ahead and speak. And Paul's words here at the very beginning are fascinating. It's as if Paul is saying, he looks at him and he reveals his hand immediately. He's like, hey, this is what I'm after. This is what I'm going to tell you right away where I'm coming from. And he looks at King Agrippa and he doesn't have a polished presentation. This is what stood out to me in the book of Acts. One of the things this, as we've preached through it this year, more than any other year uh, that I've ever read through it, is Paul's presence of mind in every situation. And here's what I mean by that. Every time Paul is brought before these trials, every time he's brought before all these different leaders in all these different areas, he's not just getting up in front of them and rehearsing everything again. Okay, this is boring. Uh, And just telling them what he's doing is every time a new leader walks in the room, he studies them. And he thinks about who they are and where they're from and the best way for him to present the message that they might be persuaded to follow Jesus. It's fascinating He's not only looking out for himself In all of these situations, every new leader. So now Agrippa comes in and Paul doesn't just rehearse what he did to Festus. He words it all differently. And he says, look, hey, Agrippa, I understand who you are. I understand where you grew up. I have an idea of what you've experienced. I have an idea of what you understand. And so I want you to listen very carefully, Agrippa. I'm really excited. I'm excited to deal with these weak arguments of the Jews yet again, like drop the mic. How many times do these guys have to come back? But I'm more excited that you're standing here right now, Agrippa. And I'm excited because what I'm about to say to you should have a really big impact on your life. Based on everything I know that you already know, you should be ready to listen very closely to what I'm going to say to you. And he presents his case, he shows his hand. What he's telling him is this, Agrippa, I wanna persuade you to become a Christian. He's just revealing it right off the bat. And it's fascinating to me because the question I had after I read these first few verses was this, He is so confident, so confident in the message of the gospel that it could persuade Agrippa. And my question is, how does persuasion work? How does that work? How does persuasion in general work? And so just a quick note, bear with me. I bored our staff to tears with this and I've tried to put it where it won't be quite as boring uh, for, for you guys. But I wanted to understand how is it that our minds change on anything just in general? How does your how does persuasion affect you at all? Well, uh, this shifted in human history about 300 years ago with what was called the Enlightenment or the Enlightenment Project. And, And the idea with the Enlightenment was this when it comes to persuasion, when it comes to changing your mind about anything, the most important thing is whether or not you can prove it. That's the message of the Enlightenment. So you only have to change your mind if something can be empirically proven. If I can give you all of the reason and all of the facts, then what you don't need is God. You don't need God, you don't need faith. You don't need feelings. You don't need any of these other things. All you need is, can this be proven? Can we empirically prove it? Because if it can be proven, then you should believe it. That was the enlightenment experience. Now, experiment. But what we know through history, and I'm giving you kind of a weak historical overview here, but what we know through history is this. It failed. It didn't work. What we learn is that persuasion is far more complex than simply reason. See, reason can get you to probability but it cannot get you to certainty. Let me give you two examples. These are kind of sensitive examples, but in my reading, these are examples that were used, and I found them helpful. If you have a contrast between two authors, Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations, and Karl Marx, who wrote Das Kapital. Now, Marx says in his writing that a good society, in order for a society to run just and righteously for it to function well is a centralized economy, a centralized government. That was his argument, and he he set out to reason people to come to that conclusion, a centralized government. Well, Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, and he said, no, it's not that. I'm going to reason you to believe that it's actually unhindered capitalism, the unseen hand of the market that really makes a a society healthy. So you have these two views. You have Marx and you have Smith writing these two different things, and both of them said we're not going to use the Bible, we're not going to refer to God. We're not gonna look at feelings. We're not gonna look at the the way that we want things or desires or any of that. We're simply gonna lay out the facts and we're gonna use reason and it's gonna lead you to the truth. And they both did, but here's the problem. To this day, around the world, people still disagree on these two topics. So if the enlightenment was true, that if we reason something to be true, we don't need feelings. We don't need opinions. Because if you use reason and facts and you prove it with empirical data, there's only one conclusion doesn't work. doesn't persuade people. You still have people with these two reasoned philosophies on economy differing all around our world. So what is it? See, this tells me that when it comes to persuading people to follow Jesus, it can't simply be apologetics. Apologetics are important. Laying out the reasons for the faith are vitally important. Defending the faith, extremely important. But persuasion is so much more than facts. It's so, much more, it's so much more complicated. And there's a list of things we can go into. I'm going to give you two things that, in addition to reason, are vitally important when we share our faith to persuade people that we'll see the Apostle Paul use here. And the first thing is this, life experiences. We're going to see the Apostle Paul show a very vivid understanding of life experiences when it comes to persuasion. He's going to show us what it looks like to say, yes, I can give you all the facts to follow Jesus, but I also need to pay attention to where you're from who you know, who's influenced you, why you believe what you believe, why you see the world the way that you see the world. And I need to take all of that into consideration. And then the most important part of persuasion all around is this. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches us, when you become a Christian, when you're baptized into Christ and you're raised up out of that water, the book of Acts tells us that you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit lives in you. But if you're not a Christian, the Holy Spirit works all around you. He's not working in you because you're not a Christian yet. But make no mistake, he is working all around you. The Apostle Paul shows a great sensitivity and understanding to how the Holy Spirit's working around people as well. And so we begin to see this. Paul launches into his uh, defense with Agrippa, and he lays out a history of his life. Now, we've read that before. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, both lay out Paul's testimony, if you will, how he came to know Jesus. And he goes ahead and he does that in this moment with King Agrippa. He says, I want to tell you my own personal testimony, Agrippa. Here it is. And he lays it out. And when you're reading it in Acts chapter uh, 26, it kind of sounds a little cocky, to be honest. He's he's, uh, he's a little bit like, man, this is where I'm from. This is what I've accomplished. This is what I've done. And, And why is he doing that? And you're thinking, hey, why is it, if you want to persuade somebody, that you have to talk about where you were born? Like, that's not that important. And this is where a phrase we used to use around here a lot that's extremely important comes into play. Context is king. You see, in Paul's day, for a defendant to be credible in a court of law, he had to establish why you should listen to what he was about to say. He had to establish that. His character was dependent upon four different things. The first was his father's name. See, in a Jewish culture, the name of the father, the reputation of the dad, the patriarch of the family carried, and still to this day, carries a lot of weight. The next thing was land. Land. Did you own property? And what did you do with that property? And how influential was it? The next thing was uh, your uh, education. Were you an educated person? Did you understand everything else uh, about your education and everything about uh, what you were trained to do? And then what do you do for a living, your occupation? And so Paul does that right there in Acts chapter uh, 26, right there in the beginning, he establishes credibility. And then he launches into defending with facts and reason the resurrection. And here's what he's up against. Greeks and Romans in those days, they had no room in their understanding for a bodily resurrection. So they had no room for you to say that somebody would raise from the dead. And so that's what Paul's up against. He's having to establish this, but he does it. He launches right in and his defense is simple. He's essentially saying, look, if God is big enough to have created and sustained life, which the Greeks and the Romans both agreed, then why isn't he big enough to raise somebody up from the dead? I like the way Mark Moore says it. Mark Moore is a New Testament. He was a New Testament professor, and he said it this way. What kind of weak, and he used other uh, stronger language, not bad language, just strong language. He just said, what kind of weak theology portrays a God lacking either the power or the love to give life to his own creation with whom he desires a relationship? This is what Paul's establishing in front of these people. And so that's what he does. Now, down at verse 13, that's where we're picking up toward the end of his testimony. He adds something to it that's kind of fascinating. Here's verse 13. He's telling Agrippa his story. He says, so Agrippa, on my way to Damascus about noon, as I was on the road, I saw a light shining. This light was so bright. It was brighter than the sun blazing all around me and my companions. He's describing what we read in Acts 9 and Acts 22. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's the third time we've read this testimony. And each time when Luke is describing the way that Paul presents his testimony, he adds something each time. There's details that are presented each time based on who he's talking to. This is really important. So because Paul's talking to Agrippa, he adds a part to the testimony that he didn't necessarily need to add before. And it's that line that you find in verse 14. It's kind of fascinating. He says this, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And that's where it ends in all of our other readings. We don't get this next part. That's usually in Acts 22 and Acts 9. You're like, okay, that's what Jesus said to him. But now Paul's saying, but he also said this. He said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And you're like, that is a super weird statement. What in the world? Well, it's a proverb during those days. And a farmer would have a large stick with a pointed end on it. And he would use an ox to plow a field. And when that ox got stubborn, and when that ox refused to keep moving, didn't want to keep plowing the field, the farmer would take the stick and poke him. Right? And, and poke him until he moved. And if he didn't want to move, now what mo- most often what would happen is the ox didn't like being poked with a giant sharp stick. Understandable. So he would kick against the goad, which is the name of the stick he would kick back against it, saying, I don't want to move, and I don't want you poking me. And so Paul says that Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? See, this is the same thing as, the, as Jesus saying to him, what's your name? And just like Jacob, Paul has this turning point moment. Just like in Jacob's life where everything shifted, everything changed, I'm about to walk through an experience that I will not be the same on the other end of. Saul has that moment hard for you to kick against the goat, Saul. Why are you resisting me? And what was Paul resisting? Well, the sovereign will of God. Why are you resisting it? And what happens is he's led to Christ. What happens is he goes into Damascus. He's baptized by Ananias. He's given a blessing. And what's the blessing? Just like Jacob, he gets a new name. Your name is Paul. He's given a new mission and purpose in his life. You're going to go and do this now. And he walks closely with God. He had a turning point moment. And now he's sharing that specifically. Specifically, he's sharing this with King Agrippa. It's fascinating how he does it. Now he shifts. He shares his testimony. Now jump down to verse 19. It says this. So then, King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient to that vision. This is what God called me to do, and I went and did it. First to those in Damascus, then to in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. This is why some of the Jews... Seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me, but God has helped me to this very day So I stand here and I testify to small and great alike I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and moses said would happen That the messiah would suffer and as the first to raise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the gentiles Well at this point festus interrupts paul in the middle of his defense and he says you're out of your mind paul He shouted your great learning is driving you insane I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king's familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because he has not done it. These things were not done in a corner. This is a really fascinating exchange. English translation, sometimes it's really hard to take the original language and put it into our language because you miss some things. This is one of those moments. When Festus interrupts Paul speaking right here and begins to berate him about being smart, it is intense, It is really intense. And he's screaming at him in front of everybody. He's saying, Paul, you are out of your mind. You're a nutcase. Are you kidding me? All this learning you've done, you got a bunch of PhDs. You're a smart guy, but you're a nutcase. You have lost your mind. You have studied your way into crazy town, Paul. What in the world are you doing? And he turns to him. He says, no, I get it. You don't understand. I get it. But the king does. Because King Agrippa, his family grew up around here. Festus, I understand that you don't think that this is true, but but the king, I know what he's wrestling with right now. The king's familiar with it. See, King Agrippa would have been eight years old when Jesus resurrected from the dead, and his family grew up around Judea, and he's ruled in Judea for quite some time. He grew up in the aftermath of the resurrection. He knew all the teaching, all the customs. He knew everything that would have taken place. And so when Paul looks at Festus and he says to Festus, he says, look, you're a Gentile. I understand that you don't get it. I understand you don't get it, but he does. The king gets it. The king understands. See, he, he, he made this assumption that anyone living in Jerusalem for the last 20 years was not going to laugh off what he was saying because there was too much evidence for it. This didn't happen in a corner, Festus, and King Agrippa knows that. He's got all the reasoning he needs to believe. And then the Apostle Paul faithfully steps into his uh, kick against the goads, what is your name, turning point type moment. And he knows, I'm not the one that can change hearts, but I'm going to play my role. And he looks at King Agrippa, and look at verse 27. He says these powerful words, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I know you believe them. You have all the evidence that you need. What's keeping you from making a decision for Jesus, Agrippa? Agrippa. I mean just think about how brilliant that is. Think about in the in the heat of the moment, his life on the line, he's still concerned with the salvation of someone else. Agrippa, I know you believe the prophets. I know you believe it. What's keeping you? Essentially he's saying, What's keeping you away, Agrippa? It's not reason, it's not evidence, it's not logic. It's not all the facts. You have all of that. I've just presented that to you, and you know all of it's true because you witnessed all of it. There's something else going on here. Notice that he doesn't immediately apply to the feelings. Well, no, Festus, it's true because I feel it's true. It's true because I've had an experience, and it just feels so good to be a Christian. And I'm telling Agrippa right now, man, being a Christian will change your life because it just feels awesome. He doesn't. He appeals to reason. He does that. He says, I've given you all the facts, everything you need. So, so Agrippa, there's something else going on in your heart. It's not reason keeping you from Jesus. It's something else. I don't know if you've had that moment in your life. That moment where you've got everything you need to make a decision and yet something's preventing you from making the change. Many of you know parts of my story, but I was 17 years old. I lived in South Florida. I was an angry, frustrated kid. I had a foul mouth and a bad temper. I grew up in, in, down in South Florida, and uh, I thought at the time, because of the pain that I went through as a child, I had a, a, diff, a difficult upbringing, and I believed at 17 years old that the world, that the universe, that if there's a God, if he's there, that he owes me something because of what I've walked through in my life. So I was angry. I played basketball at this park with a group of friends, and this guy shows up, and he takes an interest in uh, my group of buddies, and and particularly in in hanging out with me. He was a local youth minister, and for four months, every Tuesday and every Thursday, he would show up, and every Tuesday and every Thursday, I would get in his beat-up Dodge pickup truck, and he would drive me back to my apartment complex, and he would just let me ask whatever I wanted. There was no question that was off limits. I asked him all kinds of questions about God and theology and the Bible and believing and why. And for four months, every Tuesday and every Thursday, every question I could possibly ask until that one day. when he knew he couldn't change my heart, but he knew he needed to play a role. He needed to step into my kick against the goads moment. He needed to, uh, he need to step into my, what's your name, Rob? That's what he did. We're sitting in a pickup truck in November of 2001 outside the apartment complex. And he stops the truck and he says, hey, before you get out, I've got to ask you something. For four months, I've answered every question you have. What is keeping you from making a decision for Jesus? And in that moment, I had no answer. But I had everything I needed to make a decision. And he baptized me the next morning. And I got a new name. I got a new identity. I got a new calling and purpose placed on my life because somebody was faithful to step in knowing that they didn't play the role, but they played a role, just like Paul. And it changed my life forever. But it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Look at how King Agrippa responds to Paul's words. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, do you think, do you really think, Paul, that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but everyone listening to me today becomes what I am except for these chains. Agrippa responds to him, you really think I'm going to become a Christian? Do you really think in such a short time that I'm going to be persuaded to follow Jesus? And I love Paul's response because he says, Agrippa, short time or long time, I'm not the one who does that. But I can pray to the one who does. And I'm going to pray to the God who can change your heart. I'm going to pray to him that you and everyone else around me who hears my voice would be changed. They would have a what's your name, kick against the goads, life-changing turning point moment. And they would never be the same. Look, everybody in this room, I think you're in one of two camps. You don't know Jesus. You've never made a decision to follow him with your life. And you might be sitting in here today and you've not made that choice. And I would ask you the same question that was posed to me, that was posed to Jacob, that was posed to Paul. What is keeping you? What's keeping you from making that decision? The invitation's open. Your entire life can change forever. And I'd love nothing more than to walk you through what that looks like. But for many of us, we've walked for a long time with Jesus. And he's poking. He's poking at us, saying certain things need to change. You need to make some changes. You need to make a stronger commitment. You need to walk closer with the Lord. You need to lead your family better. You need to get rid of your temper. You need to to handle your money different. Do you understand that during the pandemic, pornography use increased by 900%. 900% in this world. I'd like... It's destroying lives. And he's poking, and he's saying, come on. It's time to change something. The question is, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? You've been following him for years. Who do you want to be? I can't answer that question for you, but I can do this. I can pray to the God who can answer that for you. And as a church, we can pray to the God who can change hearts on behalf of the people who need that life-changing moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for wrestling matches that change lives. Thank you that you don't shy away from us, you don't run away from us, that you run toward us, that you will meet us in our darkest moments, and that you have extended an invitation to father us as sons and daughters to bring about life-changing moments so God, As we ponder these questions, what is our name and why is it we kick against the goat? and who is it that we want to be? Father, would you work powerfully in us and around us to lead us to the only one who can change hearts? God, we love you and we worship you because you're worthy. We offer you this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.